Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for a new day, a new evening, a new opportunity to come together and to collectively seek your voice and your word. We pray, God, that our ears, minds, and hearts would be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store for us. We pray and invite your Holy Spirit to be moving amongst us and within us, speaking to us and through us your words of wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that these pages of sacred scripture would come to life for us in new ways tonight. In all the ways that we may be worried, anxious, distracted, doubtful, in moments of difficulty in our own life, we pray, Lord, we'd be able to lay all those at your feet so that they will not distract us from how you are seeking to encounter us tonight. And so we ask your blessings upon each one of us in the ways that we most need it, especially when it comes to the hearing and reading of your word tonight. Illuminate us, inspire in us to know you and love you more deeply and to follow you more faithfully. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Welcome. We're in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the 31st Sunday in Ordinary Time. It is the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Okay, so probably a familiar story that you have heard many times before. Maybe you've even seen this depicted in artwork or you've seen characterizations of it. And so whenever we come to a commonly heard story, uh, we're going to do what I always ask you to do. And I want you to delete every previous image you have in your mind of this story. Act as though you've never heard it before. You have a fresh canvas, a blank canvas in front of you, and you are hearing this passage as if for the very first time. Okay, Try and engage your senses as we read this and act as though you are there in this story, seeing what is taking place, okay? So try and pay attention to, if I were there, what would I be hearing, smelling, tasting in the air, feeling, experiencing there in the midst of this story, okay? So we're gonna read this twice through as we always do, first time through Luke chapter 19, verses one through 10. Jesus came to Jericho and intended to pass through the town. Now a man there named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and also a wealthy man, was seeking to see who Jesus was, but he could not see him because of the crowd, for he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When he reached the place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly. For today I must stay at your house. And he came down quickly and received him with joy. When they all saw this, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to stay at the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor. 
And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a descendant of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, hopefully a fresh image in your mind of this uh, very often heard and told story of Zacchaeus the tax collector. The second time through, now as we have this new image in our mind, I invite you to pay attention explicitly to the words as we read them, as you hear them. See if any particular word or phrase jumps off the page, stands out to you for whatever reason. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage, but it connects to you for some particular reason. Underline it, highlight it, reflect on it. Why is this standing out? Ask God, what are you trying to say to me through this particular word or phrase or whatever detail stands out? And bring that into your reflection the second and final time through. Luke chapter 19. Jesus came to Jericho and intended to pass through the town. Now a man there named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and also a wealthy man, was seeking to see who Jesus was, but he could not see him because of the crowd, for he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When he reached the place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. And he came down quickly and received him with joy. When they all saw this, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to stay at the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a descendant of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to reflect back on those things that stood out to you, the details, uh, any questions that this reading posed in you as you read it. We're going to spend about five or ten minutes discussing those with the tables that you're at. Uh, And then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion. If you're watching or listening to this later, please share your thoughts in the comments. But for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes to do that together. And then we'll bring it back in the large group. What are some of the things that are standing out for you? Maybe a particular word or phrase resonates with you. You don't need to know why, but maybe you just want to share what the word or phrase is. And or any questions that you... um, have kind of been discussing or have arisen and you're reflecting on this reading. Daniel. Why are people specifically in the lineage of Abraham saved instead of like outside of that? Yeah, so Abraham was one of the people in the Old Testament that God made a particular covenant with. Now, he's made, he made covenants with different people. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Moses, with David. But the covenant with Abraham was one that the Jews particularly always traced their lineage back to because that covenant had particular promises. It had a promise of the the land that they would receive, of blessing, and of the number of the people of the family of Abraham to outnumber the stars. So there would be this great covenant family of God that was chosen through whom he would redeem all of humanity. And so out of that 
kind of identity as a Jewish person coming from the Jewish nation. You trace your lineage back to Abraham. That was a sign that you were part of the covenant people. And because they were chosen by God, they saw themselves as being saved automatically by virtue of birthright, by virtue of being part of the covenant family. And uh, just to add on to that, Patty, Katie, not to throw Katie on the bus, but she did say she did say she hated the people outside of it. Like, what's what what is there to think about the people that were not saved in the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, you know, we hear about all these other people in the Old Testament, all these other groups of people: the Ammonites, the Moabites, the um, Jebusites, the Canaanites, all these different people. And if you go back in the Old Testament, particularly to Genesis chapter 19 and Genesis chapter 10, you'll actually see that their lineage links up with the people of God. But at some point, they broke off and became these other nations. Even the Philistines, the people of Egypt, like every enemy or outside force, outside people that the Jewish people face or come up against actually have a lineage that linked them back to being part of the Jewish family. They just broke off at some point. They turned away from God and in, in essence, divorce themselves from God's promises. They say, God, we don't want this. We, want, we separate ourselves from you and then become enemies of the chosen people of God. So it's not like there were these people just like randomly out here that all, oh, too bad. Like, you know, you didn't meet God first, you know, sucks to be you. And then all of a sudden you get trampled by the chosen people of God. Like that would really stink. But if you look back in the lineages, like Moabites and Ammonites, they trace their lineage to two sons of Lot who are named Moab and Ammon. And so all of these people were originally part of that chosen family of God. So it's just they decided to live in such a way that they were breaking themselves off from the covenant family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, do you think that happened like after Noah's Ark? What's that? Did that happen like after Noah's Ark? There were groups of people. Yes. So, yes. So after Noah's Ark in Genesis chapter 10, you have this whole uh, genealogy of nations called the Table of the Nations. And it shows kind of from the sons of Lot, or from the sons of Noah, I'm sorry, where all these different nations trace their lineage. And then you have the story of the Tower of Babel, where some of those people, Babel is the ancient derivative of Babylonian, so the Babylonian Empire, in that region where those people were trying to build this tower to God to make a name for themselves. And in their pride, God confuses their language and scatters them across the world. And that's how we have all these different nations in all these places. Lot is in Genesis chapter 19, so that happens right after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so again, kind of after this big moment of destruction, people trying to be faithful to God or turning away. And Lot's daughters um, have children with him in his sleep, which is obviously a very sinful thing to do because they're worried about how they're going to survive. And so thus, these enemy peoples of the Moabites and Ammonites are born from those lineages of those two daughters. So, yeah, that's where you see it. But it's all after the story of Noah. Yeah. They slept with their dad. <laughs> yeah, read the Old Testament. It's just some gnarly stuff in there. While you're sleeping. Sure. Sure a lot. While you were sleeping. Yes, they did. They got him drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Just wondering if any information as to why Zacchaeus changed. All of a sudden, was it like something that just came to him at the moment? Yeah. So Zacchaeus is an interesting figure. Because there's a few different ways we could interpret who Zacchaeus is based on the text here. Um, the one unique thing about this passage, this passage, by the way, only appears in the Gospel of Luke, 
And we have a phrase here that's only used at this point in all of the Bible, and that's chief tax collector. Nowhere else do we have a chief tax collector. So this guy was particularly important and particularly rich. In fact, it says chief tax collector and also a wealthy man, because it doesn't all that was inferred by mentioning someone was a tax collector is that they betrayed their Jewish brothers and sisters to collect tax for the Romans and to make money for themselves. But when you became a tax collector, you were auctioning for a bid. You know, So say we're all like, we're trying to make money and we can't find work and we go to the Romans and we're like, all right, we're going to betray our Jewish brothers and sisters. We're going to go to the Roman people and we're going to try and bid for this area. And I'm like, okay, I can get you know, $100,000 in taxes. And then so-and-so says, I can get $200,000 in taxes. I can get $300,000 in taxes. And whoever has the highest bid is willing to go the highest that the Romans will accept as reasonable. They get that whole area to tax. And so they first have to make back. They basically, it's like purchasing a house. You have to pay back your debt before you can make any income. So they rise exorbitant amounts above the taxes and impose those on the people that they've bid in that area to help them pay back their own debt and to make money in their pockets. So it's not necessarily inferred that a tax collector was rich. They specify here that Zacchaeus was. So it's very likely that either, A, he'd been doing this for a very long time and was set above several other tax collectors, or he had a lot of areas and he had made back a lot of his money. You know, think of someone who owns a lot of different properties. They've diversified their portfolio and they've invested and whatever that means because I work in ministry and I've just heard it before, but you know what it means probably. So they've done all of these things and they've made back some of their money. Uh, he's made back some of his money and he's accrued some wealth, okay? Um, what's interesting here is the phrase that he is uh, small in stature. There's kind of a double meaning here because the word here used in stature for stature, we typically would think means height. Um, but elsewhere, when the same word is used in the Bible, it can also mean age. So it means short in age. So that could mean he was immature or he was actually very young. Now, that wouldn't necessarily make great sense unless he inherited this, maybe this position from a family member or he was given it in just kind of a privileged position, whatever it might be. Um, so all of that is being taken into consideration. Also taking into consideration the fact that we have in here that Zacchaeus runs ahead of the crowd and climbs a sycamore tree, which is pretty much the largest tree that you can find in this particular region. Now I'm 34, and I will run and climb a tree if I like really have to, but there better be something chasing me or something like real good at the top of that tree. And I'm not that old. So I'm imagining that Zacchaeus is not too old of a person. I kind of imagine Zacchaeus is kind of a young, more kind of petulant, immature guy who kind of inherited all of this kind of privilege of this position somehow, probably due to some connections or some family role. And he has all this money and just doesn't really know what to do with it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he is a bad person because he says in here, if I have extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. If, saying they're like, I may not even be aware that I've done that. Now this may be because he's just totally oblivious to the fact that he's totally stealing from people. Or it may be due to the fact that he's actually not that bad of a person but he's in this role that everyone despises, okay? So we have to take all that into consideration to determine who Zacchaeus was and then be able to ask the question, well, why did he kind of come to Jesus in this way? So if he was this really corrupt tax collector who'd been doing this for a long time, he hears finally that this person Jesus is in the midst and he is maybe the promised Messiah. And the promised Messiah is going to bring everyone back into the family of Abraham, reunite these kind of 12 lost tribes into this glorious kingdom of Israel once again. And he may see himself as one of those lost outsiders 
thinking that, oh, maybe this is my chance to be back included with my Jewish brothers and sisters again, to not be so excluded and left out. Most often, tax collectors were not permitted in the temple area because of their line of work. They weren't allowed to worship. Um, you know, it's interesting that we had last week the parable of the tax collector. We didn't really talk about that. Like, how did he even get in there? Was he even allowed to be in there? But usually, in terms of the things I've read, they didn't really show up there. You know, they may have been allowed, but it was very rare to see them because of their line of work. They weren't really welcome. Okay. Um, and then beyond that, um, he could also have been just someone who was young, wanted to, um, you know, do the right thing, saw someone who was, you know, uh, getting all of this kind of following and just didn't like the line of work that he was in and wanted to give back, wanted to pursue Jesus. But because of this kind of facade that he had, everyone saw him as this person that was just not worth being around, that was excluded. Uh, he jumped on this opportunity to see this Jesus person who hopefully wouldn't look at him that way. So, yeah, I don't know exactly why, because of all the ways we can interpret who Zacchaeus was, why he repented. But when we encounter Jesus, it does something to us, right? And hopefully we've had that kind of experience in our life. Where we've been put in a position where no matter where we were in our life, we met Jesus in some way, face-to-face, -face, in the words of another person, in a sacramental encounter, in a moment of prayer, in a very powerful experience of beauty, or whatever it may be. And that sparks in us some kind of desire to change. It sparks in us a hunger to know, what was that? I want more of that. Because it connects to this God-given desire we all have for love, belonging, truth, goodness, and beauty that nothing on earth can fulfill. So Zacchaeus was tapped. I think something tapped into Zacchaeus, his desire there. And I think that's why. What's interesting also is you can track this kind of, there's almost this vertical elevation in this, that he's short, he climbs up a tree, he comes down, and then he's elevated in faith again. And it's kind of an allegory for his spiritual journey. All of our spiritual journey has these kind of moments of recognition that like, I'm in this low point, but then I need to pursue Jesus. And then maybe I recognize how much I have to sacrifice and give away and that it's hard work. But if I can get past that, then I'm back in this moment of faith and so on the cycle goes over throughout our life. So not only was Zacchaeus a real person that Jesus encountered, but he's also a placeholder, almost a parable for all of us. We all have that same journey as well, and we all have an opportunity to encounter Jesus and to repent for whatever reason. Yeah? I like the word, the use of the word quick and used, because oftentimes when I think of haste, I think of like the lack of patience. I know in my life, like, I feel like slowing down is always like the virtue. Mm. But I think this is like the exception of like when you know Jesus is calling you, you know, to repent, you know, to be quick about it. Yeah. So I think it's really cool how Zacchaeus um, was really quick about it. Like it was almost like he didn't hesitate at all. Yeah. I think that's a great witness um, comparatively. I don't know. Like I feel like throughout my life I've been called and I would just have to ignore it, ignore it, and then eventually, but just like based on just previous gospels like you know you know we shouldn't wait like you know there's no time to wait yeah prepared i guess yeah yeah the virtue you could say of slowing down and resting is so that we'll be able to run in the right moment you know it's a difference between like if you're someone who likes exercise or goes to the gym or runs like you know, you can run endurance and distance as long as you want, but the thing that's really going to burn calories and build muscle is sprints. And you have to slow down and let your body recover, and then so that you have the energy to run when it counts, to actually expel that energy. And that's kind of what the Christian walk is, because the world tells you, run at everything. 
run at your desires, run at your desire to achieve, run at every opportunity so that you can hustle and make that money and you can do what feels good and you can live this hedonistic lifestyle. But what the Lord says is wait, wait, but echo the words of St. Paul that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. You know, but the race is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And you have to know when to slow down and take a breath and when to keep going. But if you keep running fast as you can in that marathon, you're going to tire out. And so the Christian walk is kind of similar. Like, I like that you put it that way. Just I just imagine myself in the gym at the gym that I go to this week is called Hell Week because it's leading up to October. And today was the first day. And let me tell you, it felt like it. It was, it was hard. So I was imagining that as I was running on the gym. You reminded me of running on the treadmill this morning, and that was not fun. So, But part of that is that you, you slow down and you rest and recover to run well at the right moments. And that's the same thing in the Christian walk. Um, Zacchaeus, this is another reason why I think that he was young, is because there was a phrase at the time that said, the, the robes of an elder should never flow. The robes of an elder should never flow, meaning that older people who were wiser and more established never ran. It was not a dignified thing for them to do. This is why in the story of the prodigal son, when the father runs out to meet the son, that would have been considered so humiliating and undignified, so kind of lavish in the father's love for the son, that it would have been so unusual for a father to do that. And yet that personifies the love that God has for us. It's foolishly abundant, despite what we've done. It's the same thing in this story, that... It's very unlikely, I think, this was an older person, but probably a younger tax collector in a position of privilege who was able to, you know, exercise that energy, ran kind of like without any care for how anyone would think of him. And that would be very unusual for someone who was older at this time. Yeah, in the back. Um, yeah, like building off of what, um, what looks good out to me is kind of being done for me and the like talking about... The prodigal son, that's what I was reminded of when I mm-hmm. read that line. Uh, the, um, the prodigal son was received by his father with joy. And then building off of what Matt was saying about, you know, being quick to repent. And then what you were saying also about, like, pacing yourself so that you can be quick when it matters. Like, yeah, like when God calls us to repent, like being quick. And then once we do that, he's also quick to receive us. Mm-hmm. Um, Amen. And that's what I got from... And came down quickly and received him with joy. Even those a kid like had all this brokenness, and um, God, when when he wanted to come to God, God was quick to receive him. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, that reminded me of the prodigal son story too. Yeah. And that when when we come back to him, like when, as you're saying, we have highs and lows, and sometimes we're doing better spiritually than other times. When we come back, he's like you know that abundance of love that you were saying. He's still going to be quick to receive us. Yeah, he's always there with open arms. Exactly. And that really well, that maps well the trajectory we've been on. Because remember, we, we've been in this middle section of Luke for quite a long time, right? This period of Jesus, in he was ministering and calling his disciples in Galilee. And then from Luke 9 all the way to this chapter, Luke 19, he's been slowly making his way from Galilee, staying in that area, and then now coming down through Samaria And now Jericho is the last stop, really, before you go into Jerusalem. And all through here, right in the center of that, um, you know, I told you in Luke 15, it was like a gospel within a gospel is what it's called. And that's the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, prodigal son. Perfectly kind of summarizing um, the message of the gospel of Luke. 
And this is coming to its climax here. And actually, if you ask a lot of biblical scholars like what the theme of the whole Gospel of Luke is, they will point to this verse, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. Coming just four chapters after those parables that we've heard. And now, Jesus in this last chapter in 18 has been giving some of those last parables, and now he's showing, he's uh, between last week's gospel and this week's gospel, he's encountered the rich man, the rich official, he's healed a blind beggar, uh, and now he encounters the tax collector, and he's kind of putting these things into practice, showing that like these things that he's been teaching, he's also encountering these people who have been marginalized, who've been cast out from normal religious society as not good enough, not worthy, not appropriate for worship, and he's bringing them back into the fold, bringing them back in to kind of show that the climactic event in the, the events of Holy Week and everything that he will do is so that all will be one again. All will be one again. There will be no barriers, no division. That's when, when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil in the temple is torn in two to show there's no longer any division, no longer any separation between you together or you as a people and between you and God. He's right there, quick to receive you. There's no longer any, you know, insider, outsider. And that's what Jesus has been working to in all of these teachings, all of these miracles, all of these signs and wonders. And it kind of reaches this teaching point climax here because shortly after this, he has one parable and then he enters into Jerusalem. And we'll be, next week's gospel will be in Jerusalem uh, in the, the last week of Jesus's life. So yeah, that, that marks really well the map there of what Jesus has been doing. Yeah. Uh, I just, uh, a couple things. Um, I went out on my iPhone, but mm -hmm. never lies. <laughs> and I looked up Zacchaeus, and it said, Zacchaeus means, I guess it was in Hebrew, means clean, clean and yeah. pure. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting name for, for this particular uh, uh, tax collector, mm -hmm. to, be, to, to be Zacchaeus. The other thing was, is when you go back to the rich official and Jesus says, you've done everything except you, need, you haven't sold all everything that you have and given to the poor and follow me. And then, but over in, in the Zagaeus as a tax collector that we're reading tonight, he's saying, I'm only giving away half. And that said to me that he knows that he uh, extorted some other people. And maybe he was going to use that other half to go back and ask forgiveness and mm. pay them. And the, the four times thing, I guess that's, a, that's part of Jewish law, too. That, yeah, depending on the situation. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. He's, it, it sounds like he had some more work to do after Jesus left. Yeah, but what's interesting is that the rich official, so what we skipped over in Luke 18, uh, Luke 18, 18 is the story of the rich official because we've read it in other, um, other gospel accounts throughout the different cycles. Um, and, and what he tells him is he said, there's nothing left for you. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. But the rich official goes away sad for his many possessions. It's parallel is the rich young man in one of the other gospels. And what's interesting about that is that Jesus has to prompt him but in this scenario, Zacchaeus prompts himself. He's willing to acknowledge his need to give. He doesn't need to be prompted. And he's expectantly going to follow through. In fact, I think in the tense of some of these verbs, they're actually in the present tense. Like, I am giving this away. So it's the fact that he is already committing to do it. Yeah. But isn't that a mark of real repentance? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be prompted. Yeah. Yeah, because then it's, you know, was it coercion? Was it because I felt like I was supposed to? You know, everybody else is doing it, you know. Everybody's doing the Jesus thing. I might as well too, you know. No, it needs to come from this place of real personal ownership. 
And so it's the recognition. I ask this question sometimes, but like if everyone here at St. Timothy's and everyone in your faith community, everyone that you know that is a person of faith, if they all left the Christian faith, they all left the Catholic Church, would you stay? And that really has that kind of moment, that come to Jesus moment of, is my faith here connected to a personal encounter in Jesus that I have a lived response to? Or is this more attached to the fact that, well, I was raised in the faith, or my friends are here, or I really like that we get to come together and play bridge, or, you know, whatever it is. And those are good things, don't get me wrong. But as I think uh, Pastor Rick Warren often says, uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. To make sure that we are remembering that the gospel is the center, our response to the good news of Jesus Christ and what he came to do for us, the gift of salvation, that is what matters. Everything else is icing on the cake. It's a bonus. Socializing, friends, community. I mean, we need to have community of faith. But all the, you know, the extra things that come with that that we get to enjoy as part of this very vibrant community, you know, none of that is guaranteed. And none of that should be the reason why we come. It's really cute. Some, my, my, my daughter... At Mass, she sometimes gets in the habit of, of getting tired and bored at Mass. And she's four, you know, and she's constantly being entertained by different things. And sitting in one position for an hour, you know, is hard for her. And so sometimes she'll start asking, like, is Mass over? Is Mass over? I'm like, no, not yet, honey. It's not over. Is Mass over? No, no, not yet, honey. She's, Are we going to get a donut soon? And I ask her, I'm like, yeah, we'll get a donut soon. But why do we come? Why do we come here? And she says, oh. We don't come here for Bob, and we don't come here for a donut. We come here to worship Jesus. She knows. We've drilled that into her, like, this is why we come. Okay, it's not just because we get to see friends and not because we get treats and we get all the socialization. That's all good stuff, but that's why we come. That's the whole point. So we're constantly trying to tell her and remind ourselves, like, honey, this is the most important thing we do every single week. Most important thing we do. And we come not because we get anything out of it, but because God has given us everything and we want to give back to him. And trying to instill that in her. And she's, she's getting it slowly, slowly. The donut still, I think, piques the interest, but, you know. Other uh, questions, reflections? Yeah. You know, one thing I think goes back to what you said, uh, the, the summary of the whole gospel, mm -hmm. that Jesus uh, has come to summon man to seek, you know, and to save what was lost. You know, in, in this example also what struck me is that if I read it correctly, yes, Zacchaeus, to his credit, showed up. We don't know anything what happened before yeah. we know Jesus personally. He showed up there. But it was like with the apostles. Jesus actually called them before Zacchaeus, in this, in these readings. Zacchaeus mm -hmm. didn't say anything. He was just sitting there. Yeah. So, so Jesus just showed up like he did for apostles. And, you know, and he told them, and I think it was in John's Gospel, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think kind of reading it for myself. Our job is to show up because Jesus is calling in a way we have this benefit because we know this, like he was knowing somewhat. Mm. He showed up, but it wasn't really all his merit. Jesus called him. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a way that's also kind of remarkable. I don't know, remarkable, you know, for me. Yeah. We, yes, we need to show up, be attentive, but ultimately it's not our merit if we get to interact with Jesus or we you know, this whole faith thing, mm -hmm. it's perseverance in this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just a reflection. No, I, I, I agree. I think it prompts the question, are we present to the unexpected? Like, are we prepared on a daily basis to encounter Jesus in ways that we are unprepared for? Because Jesus is trying to encounter us every day through one another, through the poor, through prayer, through the sacraments. But are we willing to kind of stop what we're doing and be surprised by his love? 
You know, two prayers that I say very often are, Lord, surprise me by your love today, or surprise me with your love today, and uh, Lord, help me not to be in a hurry. Help me not to be in a hurry. And, and there's a great, a great book by one a Protestant pastor that I very much respect named John Mark Comer, and it's called The, the Elimination of Hurry, I think is what it's called. The the, or no, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Anyone ever read that? Yeah, great book. Um, and he has a lot of tips in it for like things you can do, like, you know, getting in the longer line at the supermarket so that you just have a moment to rest and pray and acknowledge like, Thank you, God, for the ability to be able to buy all these things and for the people in line and maybe even striking up a conversation like these little practices that we can do day in and day out to ensure my life is not about efficiency. My life is not about being in a hurry. My life is about being present to how God is trying to encounter me in the unexpected moments. You know, if we think like, okay, I'm just going to like cater the moments where God can kind of show up, you know, so like, all right, I'm going to prepare for mass on Sunday. And even though there's hundreds of other hours in the week, when I'm here for this one hour at Mass every Sunday, uh, all right, God, now I'm prepared for you to come and for you to encounter me. All right, like, the, here's your hour. This is what you got. You know, but the real kind of Christian mentality should be like, God, every hour is your hour. Every hour is your hour. You know, even in sleep, like the, the opportunity to welcome, like, Lord, speak to me in my dreams. Speak to me. Like God gives visions and dreams to people all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament when they're sleeping. You know, God's seeking to speak to us at every single moment. You know, and I don't mean like get into like dream interpretation. If you saw a crab, it means like you're a Scorpio or whatever. I don't, that stuff is like, you know, I don't know what any of that means. But like God is speaking to us at every moment. It's whether or not we're willing to slow down, back to Matt's point, to slow down and to encounter him in the unexpected. You know, like if Jesus came to us today, we probably wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup, and most of us probably wouldn't even recognize him because we'd be busy with the 99% other things on our mind throughout the whole rest of our week. We'd probably just walk right past him. We might be standing there on a street corner like, hey, and you just be like on your phone like taxi or whatever. We don't call taxis anymore. Uber, you know, or whatever. But like we'd just probably walk right past him because that's our mentality. And what I think why this encounter and what you're saying about Zacchaeus encountering Jesus is so powerful, like that reflection that you had, is that it reminds us that if we're not willing to slow down and let go of that hurry and let go of the things that we want to do and achieve, we're going to just run right past Jesus all the time. We're going to miss that opportunity for him to show up at that moment, for us to climb up that tree, for us to see him in the unexpected moments. And if it's only about like, all right, God, I have time for you and I can cater this moment, you know, and make it perfect and make myself completely aware and available to your presence. I think we'd be missing out on like 95% of the ways that God is trying to encounter us and speak to us throughout the whole week. And we just have such an atrophied relationship with him if that's all we allow him and let him into. So it's a great reminder to kind of be present to the unexpected in, our, in the course of our week. Yes. Matthew Kelly's point just in the beginning spoilers, but you want to leave the light of distractions, or you want to be looking for you know what you want. Yeah. Pay attention to it. Kind of the same thing we're talking about here. Yeah. I I know over the weekend we had the fun of getting to go see grandkids play flag football and another soccer game and stuff. What struck me about this tax collector coming out of the tree is we come down on this, we came down onto this field and there's eight, eight teams of all these kids that are just, and I see my grandson, Brandon, 
Grandpa. Oh, Grandpa. And zoom it over. So when you when you make eye contact, like happened here, and I guess that's the contact you were just getting at. We want to be ready. We want to put ourselves in the mental state to be looking for Jesus all the time, mm -hmm. not just my grandson, which is easy to look for and be excited. Oh yeah. But I mean, look for him when we when we see those cool little things that happen. Maybe they're not cool. Maybe there's a rough thing that happens. I think that's when you can acknowledge Jesus. Yeah, come to us both in the good and the bad. But yeah, the, the world is ripe with opportunity for distraction. Absolutely. But the more we're present to the things that matter, you know, like I don't think Zacchaeus at the end of his life was on his deathbed like, oh, I really wish I had collected more taxes. <laughs> you know, I think if he hadn't had this encounter, he would be thinking about this moment. He'd been like, oh, I remember when Jesus came through. Why didn't I climb that tree? Like, why didn't I go and see him? Why did I hesitate? I think that's what he would have been thinking. You know, it's about those moments, these almost like opportunities, these pivot moments in our life that matter so much. And even in the moment, they may not seem like they're that, um, you know, valuable or like they're that, I don't know, extravagant. Like I'm thinking the other day on Friday, um, my son's Halloween costume came and he, it's a Mickey Roadster Racer costume. So I don't know if you know this cartoon, it's Mickey Mouse and he drives race cars. And so it's like a, he looks like Mickey Mouse in a, in a, in a racing outfit. And so we put him in it. And I was like, do you like it? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, go show mommy. And my mom, my mom, my wife was in the kitchen. His mom, obviously, um, was in the kitchen. And in the kitchen, we have this little toy. You've probably seen it at Target. It's a slug that has wheels that, they, that kids can ride. And it helps them learn how to like ride a bike. And we have wood floors in our house. So we keep it in the kitchen. And he comes barreling out of the kitchen on the slug, just like pedaling for his life peeling like he knows how to fishtail in this thing like he's doing donuts in the living room in this full mickey roadster racer outfit having like the time of his life it lasted for 30 seconds like it was very short-lived and then he got up and he was like off oh, hot like immediately he was just sweating and he was just like didn't want it on me because i put it over his clothes just to see if it fit anyways but that moment like it was just like my, my wife was like on the ground laughing it was so joyful like i was catching video of it, it was just something that was like oh we're gonna remember this like even when he's like 40. Like we're just gonna be thinking about Mickey Rhodes the racer and him just barreling through the living room on Sluggy, you know, like it was just like such a cool moment. And like before I came here, I'm flying to Georgia tomorrow, very early tomorrow morning, and my kids um, they get put down um, for for bedtime when I'm here. So I, I had to say goodbye to them um, right before I came here, and then I won't see them again until Friday morning because I, I come back late Thursday night. So it's a long time to be away from them. And so I, I went home early from work, like in the afternoon to try and really be present to them. And they were just like, we, we put on a Goofy movie, which is the best Disney movie ever made. Don't argue with me or I'll fight you. Um, and, and we put on the soundtrack on the TV and they were just having the time of their life in the living room, like dancing and doing, my daughter was making all these weird faces. They were attempting what looked like some kind of primeval form of break dancing at one point. And it just got, it got off the rails really quickly, but like, it was so joyful to be present to that. And it would have been so easy for me to be thinking like, I got a flight tomorrow, I got to pack, I got to make sure all this work stuff is done because I'm going to be gone all week, I got to be ready for Bible study and to get so distracted. But at the end of my life, I'm not going to care about any of those things. I'm going to care about Mickey Rhodes to Racer and I'm going to care about my kids jamming out to Goofy Movie and I'm going to care about those moments and those are the things that are going to really, I wish I had more of and that I was more present to. And how much more then are we gonna miss the opportunities that we had to encounter Jesus and the ones that we missed? And how life-changing it was for Zacchaeus in this moment. 
to have recognized like he didn't miss his moment. Like this was a moment for him and the Lord. And because he took that step forward in faith, because he sought out Jesus, he recognized that Jesus was seeking him. Recognized like this, it says in verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But then what does it say in verse 10? For the Son of Man has come to seek. Who's seeking whom here? You know, there's this relationship there. And also, where he says, uh, Zacchaeus, come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. And then later on, today salvation has come to this house. This idea that, like, Jesus already knew he needed to be present here. The same language, like, he had to pass through is what is used in John chapter 4 when he encounters the woman at the well. Remember, he had to go through Samaria, even though they never went into that region. They were totally divided culturally. He had to go. Why? Because he had to encounter the person he knew he had to seek and to save. Yeah. Maybe, you know, we'll never know. It was, you know, it'd be just kind of a hypothetical opinion. I think, um, maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, you can say the same thing about the hemorrhaging woman. You know, I think Jesus knew that she was there. He asked the question, who touched me? Not as a lesson for, not as a, a question that he needed the answer to, but as a lesson for the disciples and as an opportunity for her to come forward in faith. And so I think the same as Zacchaeus. I think Jesus' presence is the invitation. And I mean, you know, what a great image for the chapel. His presence is the invitation. He's always there. Present in the Eucharist, his presence is the invitation. Mass is available every day, multiple times on the weekends. Do we go? And do we go with hearts ready to receive, ready to encounter, running after him, climbing the tree? Or are we acting like, oh, I've already been running after all these things and climbing all these other trees this week, and I guess I'll just plop down here and wait for it to be over? You know, that's not the mentality of a Zacchaeus heart, which is a heart that recognizes, even though I'm a sinner, even though I've done these things, even though I've made mistakes, I'm encountering Jesus who is before me in this moment, and it's going to change me. And it did. Today's salvation has come to this house. Not only to Zacchaeus. Through his faith, through his action, not only did salvation come to him, but it overflowed into his whole house. Who knows how many people that was? And being the wealthy man that he had, wealthy man that he was, he probably had a very large household with a lot of people, family and servants who lived there. Salvation coming to all of them because of his one act of faith. Beautiful. Michael. What time is mass tomorrow morning? What day is it? It's 8:30 tomorrow morning. Yeah, you're welcome. 8:30 tomorrow morning in the church. Great question. The most important question. Matt, you said, um, yes. forget everything you do about the story. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, does anyone remember? There was a kid's song about Zacchaeus. Hmm. About it's a hard name to rhyme. <laughs> yeah, but come down from that sycamore tree. I oh. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't remember exactly right. Yeah, all of us are going out. I remember that. Um, but it, like the, the character Zacchaeus in, in the stories we learned as kids, he was sort of this goofy uh, Danny DeVito type character. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to forget that image. Now Zacchaeus in my mind is forever Danny DeVito. Wow, that's great. So your discussion about what he most likely was younger. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, like Danny DeVito and twins. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the fact that 
Yeah, that's what struck me, that he was seeking Jesus, and Jesus was seeking him as well. Mm -hmm. And you, you kind of wonder, did they did they know each other mm. prior, you know, prior to that? And um, and he he climbed that tree because he was determined to see Jesus, right? Yeah. And then um, another thought I had was, um, is there ever a reference in the Gospels where a tax collector is not a sinner? Ooh. Because it kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, I think it's always inferred. Yeah. I mean, I think there's evidence here that, like I pointed out before, if I have extorted anyone, he may not have been. Right. I mean, um, not that I'm aware of otherwise. The yeah. way that you described how tax collectors were chosen is kind yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, and let me let me like. Let me give you a little flavor of what life was like in terms of taxes, too, at this time, okay? So if you lived in Jerusalem at this time, um, there was a poll tax, and that was just a, a tax that you got by virtue of existing. So if you were a male from age 14 to 65 or a female from age 12 to 65, you had to pay the poll tax. Um, you had to pay uh, the ground tax, which is one-tenth of all your grain and one-fifth of all your wine and oil automatically paid through tax. There was an income tax of about 1%. And there were taxes on all exports and imports and different, um, different duties and different things like that. So if you were coming into a town, uh, a tax collector could stop you. They could tax you on all of your goods. They could tax you on the type of animal bringing in your cart. They could tax you on the number of wheels on your cart and the amount of weight on that cart. They could tax you on all of it. And there was a standard rate. And then they could, yeah, like state of California, right? Yeah. And then they could, and then he could up that above, far and above, whatever he wanted to pocket. Okay? So just the virtue, like if you just said the word tax, it's like if someone is like, you're having a great day, and then someone just says IRS or DMV, you're just like, ugh, like immediately, like just like, no, never, don't want to do that. You know, like that's just how we feel about it, you know? So that, that immediately, in regardless of how good-hearted or good-natured a tax collector was, just by virtue of being a tax collector, anyone associated with tax, because the, the disparity between income was so vast and so many people were struggling, trying to get by, living in poverty, like totally oppressed, totally taken advantage of. Uh, one, one bad day or one bad season, like you're, you're doomed, you know? And so that's kind of the mentality that people were bringing, you know, to how they saw tax collectors and how just repugnant, you know, they thought they were. So um, even if there was a good and virtuous one, which, you know, it seems to... Jesus seems to think often that they are, or that they at least have an easier capability of being than most of the Pharisees, um, because they're, I guess they have less to let go of, or, you know, they're more maybe spiritually destitute. It's easier for them to recognize this opportunity Jesus is presenting to them. But still, even then, they're in this very difficult position, you know, lowest of the low for a lot of people. Um, a couple other interesting things about this, you know, we're in Jericho. And we all know, uh, maybe we hopefully all know or remember the story of Jericho from Joshua chapter six, when the, the walls of Jericho fall down. You know, it's a childhood story. You may have seen a lot of childhood biblical stories when the Jewish people have been wandering in the desert for 40 years and they finally get to enter the promised land. They have to go through Jericho because Jericho is seated right between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. And so it's the gateway into Jerusalem, which is this beautiful city up on a hill. It's a really great militaristic uh, vantage point. And it's also kind of the gateway into the river valley, like the, the, the Valley Kidron and all of that area there where there's this kind of abundant, fertile area for growing. Um, Josephus 
called um, the city of Jericho the fattest in Palestine, that it was just this like luxurious city. There were balsam groves that you could smell from miles away. There were rose gardens, there were palm trees. It was a very exotic and beautiful place. And the image, I think, of the Old Testament struggle with, with, uh, with Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, you can go back and read it, but this kind of image of the fact that like the entire city was like corrupted and, and the, the people march around it in prayer and the walls fall down. And I think the one faithful person in that city was Rahab, who was a prostitute. And Rahab, because of her faithfulness, ends up being part of the lineage of Jesus. She's a relative of Jesus. She's listed in his genealogy in Matthew. The one faithful person in Jericho who allowed those spies to come in and see, um, find a way into the city so that they could, oh, am I remembering this wrong? I'm pretty sure that's Jericho. Yeah. Anyways, when they come in and they spy out the city, I could be misremembering this, but I think it's true. Um, So that image of the prostitute, someone who was hated, someone who was seen as a sinner, impure, unclean, and these walls being up. Take that now and apply that to what we're seeing here. I think it's no mistake that like Jesus is here. He's in Jericho so that these spiritual walls can come down. For someone else who's in this oppressed category, seen as not good enough, seen as impure and unclean. Yeah. This is a piece of trivia. Jericho is one of the oldest continuously inhabited sites. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe there is, if you go to Jericho today, which I believe you can, I believe there is a sycamore tree outside of the city that they believe, they call it Zacchaeus' sycamore. Because sycamores can live to be a hundred years, hundreds of years old. And typically like, Five or six hundred years is a pretty old sycamore, so if it's still that sycamore, that's pretty impressive, or there was some gardening magic that happened, or they took a cutting off one and planted another, I don't know. But there were even laws about sycamores that they always had to be planted outside of the city because the root system was so thick that it could corrupt the buildings and the structures in the city. So you can kind of identify where this would have been, and that Jesus was intending to kind of leave the city. He was like on his way out, giving kind of this last opportunity for for Zacchaeus to encounter him. And then he sees him up in the tree and calls him down, enters into his house. And also the thing we mentioned about Zacchaeus' name meaning clean. And there's something, I've said this before about Hebrew names. Your name was like your essence. It was your identity. And so to not live up to your name was something particularly um, I don't, irreverent. The only example I can think of is like, you know when you go to the dollar store, you're looking around the dollar store and you find something you want. And you pick it up, and the price tag says like $199. You're like, what is going on? It's a dollar store, like not a $199 store. It's like you're not doing what you said, you're not who you said you were, you know? And that's the same thing with Zacchaeus. It's like people probably would have been like, Are you kidding me? Like, you're not who you're supposed to be. You're not clean, you're not pure. And yet Jesus sees beyond all of that, right? He sees what's in the heart. There's so much other symbolism in this, but I, I kind of want to bring it to a close. Are there any uh, one more final question or comment? Yeah. You mentioned that when the, the Jewish people came into the promised land, Jerusalem was already there. Well, Mount Zion was already there. It was called, the city was called um, Salem or Ariel. Um, it was a place of the Jebusites, but it wasn't called Jerusalem yet because Jerusalem is like a, a, a combination of two names. Um, the the town Salem, where it was, or the name of the hill, which I think eventually is translated to Zion, and then Jeru, which I think is a a name of a king or a region or the Jewish people, some derivative of that. So, uh, it's in the scripture. I can't remember exactly when it starts being called Jerusalem, but you, I think you do see the name change somewhere in the Old Testament. I don't know it offhand, but yeah, it's probably one of the the kings.
you know, kings in the Old Testament. So kings or judges. Modern-day society is saying, you know, that they, in Israel, they claim Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the capital. Mm -hmm. It's the Jewish capital. Yeah. You know, but they didn't found it, you know, so... Yeah, no, it, it, there were people dwelling there before that, but they were part of the Jewish family, like I said before, that had broken off and it kind of in, went into this area, and they were now these other Canaanites, Jebusites, Perizzites, all these other groups of people. So, yeah. Yeah, Perizzites. Perizzites. Not parasites. Though they may have uh, had a useful pun there in the Old Testament times. I don't know. Never thought about it before. Um, I think lastly... Um, you know, sycamore tree uh, is symbolic of a lot of different things. Um, but one of, it, one of the things it's symbolic of is eternity. Um, because it has this ability to change with the seasons and to last for so long. And so this kind of opportunity that Zacchaeus finds himself to enter into eternity, to enter into this encounter with Jesus Christ and be transformed, is really an invitation for all of us as we read and reflect on this this week. It's like, how is God inviting you and I to change, to be transformed this week, deeper conformed to his heart? How is he inviting us to encounter him in the unexpected, to slow down so that we can run toward him when it matters, when we are able to identify him and where he's calling us and let everything else dissipate, all the noise, distractions, everything else calling for our attention? How is God calling us to just kind of focus in this week? Remember, his presence alone is his invitation and he is present. So maybe that means this week just an invitation for some extra time in the chapel or some time at a daily mass, you know, extra mass this week that you maybe wouldn't normally go to, to just encounter him in the unexpected ways. Maybe it's, you know, going out for a walk, you know, on your lunch break or spending some time praying the exam in the evening, looking up at the stars, or it could be a myriad of different things, but just allowing that presence of God to surprise you, to encounter you in moments where you're not in a hurry this week so that you can enter into those moments of eternity because they're always available to us and Jesus is always seeking to give them to us. We're just often, I think, too busy and distracted to notice. So this week, as we reflect on this gospel, it's a great reminder for us to slow down and recognize those different things so we can encounter Jesus because he's always intending to pass by. It's just whether or not we notice. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this word, for this discussion, for all these wonderful reflections and questions and Above all, for your spirit moving to remind us that you are always present in the midst of our day, always seeking to love us, to seek and to save every part of us that is lost and that is distracted by the things of this world. And so we pray, God, that this week, everything that we are, all that we think, say, and do would be more conformed to you, more ready to recognize your presence in our lives, and more ready to slow down and encounter you in the unexpected ways. Pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.